0: Welcome to the Sober Podcast, hosted by Jack Herovich, talking all things mental health, business, finance, and all-round shit talk. We'd like to thank our sponsors, T-Boy, Performance Ice Tea, and Hiatus
1: Non-Alcoholic Tea. So, um, yeah, th- thanks for inviting me on, to, on
2: to, it. to your podcast. My pleasure, mate. It's great to have you on board. And... Um... It's exciting to kick off the first one with yourself and, yeah, dive deep into everything that you're surrounded by and, uh, yeah, interested to learn what you're doing currently.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll get into what I'm doing currently. But I thought that what I might do is uh, introduce myself to your audience um, because they don't know who I am. You know who I am, but your audience won't. And, um, first of all, I want to, it's, it's an honor to be invited as the first guest on your podcast. So thank you for that and, um, congratulations. And, um, I'm sure you're going to be successful. Um, so I just thought I might give a bit of my background. Would you like me to give some background?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Pete. That'd be
1: great. All right. So, so, um, my, my background's, for 30 years, I've been a registered nurse. I'm still currently registered, uh, 34 years actually, and uh, I've been a qualified counsellor for the same amount of time. So that's my um, my career uh, choice, and um, so it's an interesting career choice for a male. I think only 10% of nurses are males, and so it's a female-dominated profession, but I was... I originally got into nursing because I thought it'd be a good good way to meet women. <laughs> but then I I stayed in it because I actually liked the work. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, that's that's how I originally got into it. Um you'd think there'd be more noble reasons, but there wasn't. Um, but I've have, I've have worked in in that profession for 34 years, so I just found that I I was a natural fit for being in a supportive and caring role for for people. And um My my very first job after graduating was in a a drug and alcohol residential detox and rehab unit. And uh, I I just loved it from day one. It was really, like I said, a good fit for my personality and temperament. Um, And then I I found myself working in uh, settings where there was a high level of chaos uh, and trauma. So I've worked predominantly in uh, emergency um psychiatric, uh, mental health, uh, maximum security prisons, detention centers, remote indigenous communities, um, and then a bit in private practice. And uh, I just seemed to want to go where the action was, but also where there was chaos and trauma, because I didn't know it at the time, but what i was looking to do and what i think my nature is is looking to bring order to chaos and i think you know that's just a reflection of my childhood my childhood was quite traumatic and chaotic and i've been looking to do that to do that ever since and so um that's that's my background in terms of my career uh in the last 15 years i've been working more um as a uh coach Um, and a trauma therapist and working with people who've got, you know, PTSD or or any kind of unresolved trauma, and uh, I I love that work. Um, I've also always liked working with people with addiction issues, and I also still currently work doing some private custom exclusive type um, alcohol and drug rehab for individual clients. Um, here in byron Bay um I worked at the sanctuary in Byron Bay, which was the leading and most expensive drug treatment center on the planet for about twelve years. Um, I only worked there three years um but worked with some pretty interesting um characters some some of them quite famous, but of course I can't disclose who who they were um and and then I guess another thing that's probably important to know about me is that I've spent about uh, more than a dozen years experimenting uh, with psychedelics, Um, not here in Australia, of course, because they're they're not legal here, but I've traveled a lot to the US, um, Costa Rica, Mexico, Peru, um, several times to to do experimental work with, with psychedelic plant medicines, and that's always fascinated me um and so currently in the last couple of years my interest has been predominantly around shadow work so doing my own personal shadow work but i've done so much of it now that i'm i've created an, an online school and running a online shadow integration course for supporting people who are interested in doing their own shadow work and are looking for guidance in how to do that So yeah, that's
0: that's that's a bit of my background.
2: Yeah, it sounds like you've uh, you've packed quite a bit into your years.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I I, um,
0: and
2: uh, yeah, definitely keen to deep dive into the uh, the shadow work in a a bit later and get a bit of a better understanding for everyone what that is. Yep. And so, I guess the the first question is obviously since you were a young fella, you were kind of drawn to this kind of uh, high stress, kind of trauma situations.
1: Yeah, and I I've always I think it's because my childhood was chaotic, as I mentioned. So I'm one of seven children born to uh, my parents. You know they're lovely people, and I've got a good relationship with them now as an adult. But as a child, they really struggled with um, alcohol. Uh, they were, you know, in my opinion, both alcoholics um, during my child, some of my childhood years, and um, they were both a bit heavy-handed when it when it came to handing out the discipline. So I received, you know, many beltings from my father and my mother, and. You know, often my father was, you know, intoxicated when he was doing that, and so, you know, I never really felt safe as a boy. I felt I wanted to feel safe, but my home environment, the people who were supposed to be making me feel safe, were the ones that were, you know, kind of dishing out the the rough treatment. I I don't want to call it abuse because I don't think they were intending intending to abuse me. I think they were they were under the belief that the the way to raise an obedient child is to use corporal punishment, um, I think that's a very failed strategy. I, I have turned out okay, but in spite of that, not because of it. Um, and so my childhood felt unsafe and, and chaotic and traumatic. And so I think that is what predisposed me to go into those kind of settings once I
0: started my, my working life.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and it seems like you've you know, come up with a a, a a solution to kind of fix that thing inside you that you know that's been crawling towards you.
1: Yeah, it's um, you know, I became a counselor and a nurse, and that, that some someone it was an English professor once did a survey of psychologists, uh, and they they found that seventy five percent of psychologists go into psychology. Uh, To heal their own trauma, and I think it's the same for me. The reason why I was, you know, apart from meeting girls, the other reason I went into the caring professions and had always always had an interest in psychology was I was attempting to heal my own hurts. You know, when when your when your primary caregivers are the ones that are dishing out the trauma, um, that that's pretty much the criteria for a diagnosis of complex PTSD. So while I've never been Formally diagnosed with that, I can say with absolute certainty that I had complex PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've successfully treated that. And I've actually had that twice in my life, PTSD. A complex PTSD as a child and then PTSD as an adult. And I'll talk about that maybe another time. But yeah, it's, um, it's been a path of Needing to heal myself, and so I put myself in these settings where my work is to support others in their healing, but in the meantime I've also got my eye on wanting to heal my own hurts and i've I'm quite pleased with um, the level of success I've managed to achieve in healing myself these days. I don't relate to having trauma and uh, my life works I feel like I'm somewhat of a success and you know, giving my early childhood, um, I think I've done well to get where I am.
2: Yeah, hundred percent, Pete. That's that's uh, incredible. And I guess um, you know, I, I find it interesting how you said, um, you know, a lot of psychologists go into the industry to to heal themselves, and that you know that that's their mission. Once you know a psychologist or a, a person like yourself finds themselves uh, you know, treating people and working with people that um, are suffering from X, Y, and Z. Do you find that you take a lot of the, the hurt and energy on yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So when you say X, Y, and Z, when I'm working with people in the mental health space, it's mostly anxiety, depression, and trauma. So that's the X, Y, and Z. So a lot of my clientele, in my counseling, coaching, therapy work, um, suffer from trauma, anxiety, or depression. And I'm, yeah, it's hard not to take on some of the other person, you know, the, the client's trauma. Uh, I'm an empath or em- empathetic by nature, which means I feel deeply another person's emotional world, it, which is a blessing. As a therapist to be able to really understand where someone is in terms of their emotional and psychological state. Uh, so that's the blessing, but the curse is that I'm so open and receptive to their emotional space that I, I find I do take some of it on. And so I found that when I was doing the trauma therapy work, you know, there was one point there where I was doing four or five, you know, five hour sessions a week. And that became, I started to burn out because I was listening to deep stories of trauma and uh, I think taking some of it on board. So, So I
0: had to develop strategies or techniques to
1: be able to protect myself from what I was hearing and witnessing. I saw a quote once, it was just a meme online, and it said, empaths, make sure you observe rather than absorb. So I took that on and then when I started working with trauma clients, yeah, I stopped absorbing them and just put a bit of space there and was objectively observing them and assessing them rather than absorbing their emotional states. So that helped somewhat and then I just cut down to one trauma client a week so that I didn't get overwhelmed. And the other thing about it is if you're a therapist and you're working with people in the mental health sphere, you really need to be dedicating a lot of time and money to self-care. So I do a lot in terms of keeping myself healthy. And then another aspect of this, and most practitioners would know this, that when you're working with that kind of clientele, you do need to be getting regular supervision. So where you go off and you see a, a therapist so that you can Decompress and yeah, um,
0: unwind and just, you know, share what's going on for yourself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that'd be, um, you, you really need to put yourself first and make sure that, you know, you've got the support as well, taking on all that, um, especially working with, you know, the clients, um, that you've worked with. I think it would be quite challenging, but I guess also an extremely, uh, rewarding. Um, aspect of it too, seeing, you know, positive results when there are.
1: Yeah, I I guess it depends what your temperament's like, but for me it is very rewarding and and that's why I do the work I do. Um, It's not like I've managed to um, accrue an an enormous amount of money through the work that I do because it's not particularly financially rewarding, although it it can be, but it's more personally rewarding in witnessing, you know, people – Overcome adversity, you know, heal their trauma, um, turn their life around, transform themselves, and when when you're witnessing that and recognizing that you're playing a part in that, it it is very rewarding, at least for me, because I am you know fundamentally and temperamentally interested in people. I'm, I'm what you call a people's person, Jack.
0: Yeah, absolutely
2: agree there. So I, yeah, it's just fascinating. And for people listening, I've done <laughs> quite a bit of work with Pete too as a, as a personal coach. And, um, he definitely has a different approach and, um, way of, uh, transforming your life, I guess, into older habits that weren't serving you and bringing in new ones that are, um, I guess like in terms of your coaching world, Pete, what do you find is you know compared to that traditional types of therapy compared to coaching and um, healing i guess what do you what do you think's wrong currently wrong with the the mainstream system that doctors are recommending and um, uh, providing, and what do you think needs to change in order to to better help the mass of people? You like to
1: ask the big questions, don't you Jack. <laughs> So um for sure I do yeah, yeah so that's a great question and so I I do have clients who come to to see me after they've seen clinical psychologists therapists maybe they've seen several therapists and psychologists and they come to work with me and I do hear commonly quite frequently that they do find my approach unconventional but they say they also find it Effective and even more effective than some of those other approaches that they've had experience with and so whilst i whilst I can and do do trauma therapy and am also a counselor, primarily I see myself as a coach rather than a therapist or a counselor and there's a good reason for that um, i had I was in psychotherapy in my early twenties for two years and had two clinical psychologists overseeing my therapy. And whilst it did help me, uh, get familiar with my emotional world and how to identify my emotions and express them and, and release them, it didn't really do the heavy lifting in terms of, uh, healing my trauma. And it wasn't until I was in my early, th- early forties that I came across the coaching approach and that was really transformational. So, um,
0: I've got, Quite a few friends and
1: colleagues who are psychologists and clinical psychologists, and they're quite clever at what they do, but they're also restricted in what they can do because they're a licensed professional. That they have these uh, professional bodies telling them what what kind of modalities and therapies they can use and which ones they can't. And in, in, in my opinion, that that limits their effectiveness and therapists. And some of my psychologist friends have told me that, that they feel like they've got their hand tied sometime because, you know, they, they have to be doing cognitive behavioural therapy, you know, with every client. And they've got to be documenting that they're doing that. And whether the client needs it or not, whether the client's benefiting from it or not. So they start to get this kind of one shoe fits all, you know, one size fits all. And I find that restrictive. Yeah. Um, The the other issue and problem I have with typical psychotherapy approaches is that they tend to be focusing on the trauma, the feelings, the emotions, and what's not working. You know, like what's wrong. And and you can go to a therapist. I've I've had clients that have come to see me, and they've been with their therapist for eight years. And you know, I say to them, well you know, you should have sacked that therapist after six months because, you know, you don't need to see somebody for eight years. I, I think that's ridiculous. Um Having said that, there may be people, I, I think that's true for most people, but there may be people who just having someone to go and talk to once a week or once a fortnight, may be keeping them alive because otherwise they'd be clinically depressed or may kill themselves. I don't know. But I certainly think there's there's certainly a problem with an approach that after eight years, you're still not getting anywhere. So I find coaching uh, way more effective and and, uh, a rapid approach with really dealing with the underlying stories that are really keeping people sick, for lack of a better word. So, so I turned my
0: Yeah, I, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I turned my life around through with a coaching approach and found it way more dynamic uh a lot quicker and way more effective.
0: Um there, there
1: some issues uh and problems and conditions will respond to a coaching approach and some will respond better to a therapeutic approach, but um there are definitely clients that come to me and have their big breakthroughs once, yeah. once they find coaching, uh, and, and what it can do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely
2: two, um, you know, some big differences between the both. And, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, interesting to see, obviously for yourself to see who gravitates towards one or the other or maybe both or, and so forth. Um, in terms of the, the work you've done with addictions in the past, I find it fascinating that you've, um, you've worked with some, some pretty big names and, um, you know, some great institutions. Um, what was the, the, the bit, like the biggest reward from, from doing that kind of work? And did you see like a main struggle in that addiction space that was an ongoing, um, you know, you noticed it being an ongoing problem?
1: yeah for sure i think I think because of my childhood you know both my parents having issues with alcoholism, I think that set me up to have a special interest in in addiction and um, having parents that were addicted uh, dealing with my own addictions um, working you know i ran the i was part of the team that ran the addiction services in the prison system um, I've worked in private and public. Um, alcohol detox and rehab. So I've got a lot of experience working. Um, I've tried and experimented with most substances myself, just to get a understanding of what they are, what they do, and um, so I've got quite a broad wow. spectrum uh, level of experience with addiction, looking at it from lots of different angles. And I, I guess I've formulated my own views and opinions on on what addiction is and what it isn't, and um, I do have a problem with the disease model for addiction. I'm not a big fan of the disease model, um, and and this is one of the the problems with a ov- overly um, medicalized model is that we tend to pathologise some things that that aren't pathological. So things like things like alcoholism, it's it's not really a disease. You know, it, it's it's really a uh,
0: it's more of a Behavioral issue.
1: Um, you know, you've got a problematic habit that you want to take responsibility for rather than having a disease. And it's the same with obesity. I, you know, I don't see obesity as a, a disease. Uh, to me, obesity is a food addiction. And so we want to look at it from a behavioral point of view. Yeah. Because if you pathologize things and go down the medical model and you say, okay, so obesity, now we, we're saying that that's a, um, that's a medical condition. Then they're going to start, you know, they provide you with these tablets that are like block fat absorption. So they don't tell you to, to stop eating so much fat. Just take these tablets and you won't absorb it. You know, the problem is, you know, you go to the toilet yeah. and everything starts floating because it's full of fat. That's one of the problems. So they're, they're, going, they're going to sell you tablets. Yeah, or, they're to, or they're going to start doing gastric sleeve surgery and things like this to shrink the size of your stomach so they're not addressing the behavioral issue of you're putting too much food in your mouth because you're addicted to food they're telling you that you've got a medical disease or problem pathologizing it and then you know offering you these solutions that i think well why don't we just you know look at it you know by preventing it rather than treating it so so to me you know, in most cases of obesity, and you know it's a pretty prevalent problem. Uh, I look at it from a food addiction perspective. Um,
0: so, uh, so when you there's many schools of
1: thought around what addiction is, and um, a therapist friend of mine said it's it's like five blind men. Trying to describe an elephant when each of them is holding a different part of the elephant. So, so
2: <laughs> that's very true.
1: Yeah. So so some people are holding the tail and they're saying, "Oh, you know, this is a disease, and we've got to treat it as a disease." But I, I don't see
0: I don't see a drug addiction as,
1: as a disease. I see it. Um, people are self medicating. Uh, to try and deal and cope with whatever their issues or problems are, usually trauma related. And um, if you treat the trauma effectively, then the people mm. will stop self-medicating with intoxicating substances. Mostly it's self-medicating or escapism. And so when I'm working with someone with an addiction issue, I don't, and you yeah, know, there's another someone might be holding the, the leg of the, the elephant and they might have a moral view of looking at it and so they 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 judge the person using alcohol or drugs negatively they call him an alky you know or a junkie you know these demeaning terms and i i don't look at it as in, in a moral perspective if, if someone's using drugs or alcohol they're doing it in a genuine attempt to self medicate They're suffering. Why are they suffering? Well, they've got unresolved, unreconciled psychological wounds or injuries. And so that's the work I do. I address those, the underlying things. Gabo Mate does similar work. Um, And yeah, I I like, I like, I listen to a lot of his podcasts and and, um, him and I have a similar way of looking at, at this. So I'm looking at, when I look at addiction, I look at it from a, from a behavior and habitual uh, viewpoint. So I'll, I'll explain this. So
0: if you take, say, cigarette smoking, or let's start with cigarette smoking, it starts out as you have your first cigarette. So
1: at that level, it's just a behavior. You had one cigarette. If you start having one cigarette a day, now it's become, you've gone from a behavior to a habit because you're doing it every day. Then if you start smoking 10 a day and you have to have it, you you can't say no, now it's become like an obsession or a compulsion. You know, I I have to have this thing. I can't go without Mm. it. Then if you start smoking two packets a day and it starts, you know, for me it becomes an addiction when it starts having a negative impact. So, you know, if it's affecting your breathing, it's affecting your fitness, it's affecting your health, it might be affecting your relationship. Then at this point, you know, that's one definition of addiction is I've I've got this compulsion or obsession and it's now affecting my life in some negative way. And so you get to an addiction thing, and then people want to take that one step further and say, Oh, now it's a disease. So we go from a behavior to a habit. To a compulsion, to an addiction, to a disease. That's the medical model. Now, what are you giving, what are you giving up at each point, each step along that pathway? You're giving up something, more of something with each step. And what, what you're giving up is
0: self responsibility for your behavior.
1: So at the end of it, by the time it's a disease, it's now all. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's got nothing to do with me. I've got this disease called alcoholism. So, I, you know, that's why I drink, not because I took the first drink and took the second one, and I don't want to take responsibility for my behavior and how I got here. I want to blame it on this disease called alcoholism. So I have problems with with. Some of the approaches of the medical model in terms of pathologizing these things that are really more behavioral. And so, sure, you look at what's behind the behavior, but then you've still got to get the person to stop doing the behavior. So that's where the coaching approach comes in. So the therapeutic part is looking at what's behind the addiction and then the coaching part, you need a good coaching program to give the people the tools to
0: not drink or not smoke or not do drugs
1: so so just to Mm. expand on that a little bit further yeah the
2: underlying reason as to why
1: yeah when i was working in, in some of these residential detox rehab facilities they they did a pretty good job at getting the people off the drugs and then they would send them home but they didn't have any programs or tools to give the people to stop them using and that was one of my frustrations and one of the reasons I, I left working for, for other people and and started to develop my own model is because it's one thing to get someone off using substances. It's another one it's another thing to give the people the tools to to keep them off.
0: And I think that's some of the work that I did with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was um yeah, definitely a um and Eye opener for me at the time, too, and a different approach, but you know, still to this day, it's worked since.
1: Yeah, so, so I want to throw it over to you for a bit, Jack. So, um, so when you came to me, you here we go, yeah, you you were, you were using alcohol and it was causing problems in your life, and uh, you came to me in a for coaching, and you managed to not only Stop your drinking, but turn some of those problems in your life around quite remarkably and and, and to this day you, you are you know you stand out as you know uh, certainly one of my many success stories in in helping people supporting them dealing with addiction so I'd like to hear from you like what what was it about how I worked with you that
0: supported you in in being able to s- say no to the drinking and, and turn things around.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because what you just spoke about, I definitely tried the traditional methods to start with therapy and, um, whatever else. But I, I, I think the one thing I remember by going to, you know, the, the, the therapy, therapy sessions was I used to sit there and, or, you know, the day before I'd be like, fuck, I really don't want to go, you know, I dread it. Um, And you know, since working with you, I I actually look forward to those sessions. I think was the biggest and difference because you went in with the approach of not talking about you know x, y, and z that had happened or why you felt like having two drinks or five drinks. You talked about improving your life. So I almost looked at it as instead of taking your car to go get fixed and them just putting a little bit of. bandage around the hose to stop the leak we you know i feel like i was just taking my car to your garage and we were hyper high performance improving it (laughs) um so i think that that, that was a key difference i see um and yeah i think i was quite lucky in the sense that i did enjoy it the work with you um and you know not just looking at the problem it is drinking as itself and looking at why that you know why I was drinking that much you know was i happy in my career was i happy in my relationship um was i happy with who i was um you know i was being shady not true to myself uh, so i think there was a lot of yeah like we said before underlying reasons as to why you know i would look, i would lean on alcohol as a bit of a a relief support <clears throat>
1: Yeah, so I just want to jump in for the quickly. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's the, the distinction between yep. the the medical model or therapy model are looking for what's wrong, and 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 they're looking at, mm. and, and then they find things that are wrong, and then they focus on that. And I don't do that. I haven't done that for a long time. I'm never looking for what's wrong because if you're looking for what's wrong, you'll find a whole list of things, and then you know what do you do with that? And so rather than look for what's wrong I look for
0: what's not yeah. working. There's a big difference between what's not wrong
1: and what yeah, what's wrong 100%. and what's not, what's not working and so when you came to see me I didn't I didn't I didn't look at you as an alcoholic that there was something wrong with you I looked at you as a young man who was wanting more for himself but there were things about his life that weren't working in order for you to achieve those things so I just asked you what's not working about your life, Jack, and you told me. And I said, "Well, okay, let's let's take those things one at a time and break them down, and let's examine what's, why it's not working, what's not working about it, and how you can do things differently to get those various things in your life working. Whether it was your fitness, your relationship, your relationship to alcohol, your social life, how do we, how do you self-manage all those things?" to get your life working for you. But I think sometimes therapists, because they're looking at it from a pathology model, they think there's something fundamentally wrong with the person and, and start focusing on that. And then they'll go into maybe the historical background of why there's something wrong. And then you get bogged down in the the story of, you know, your past or your childhood
0: and what, what was wrong with that. And then, you get stuck in this
1: self-perpetuating and reinforcing sad story about your life, and you keep telling that over and over again and don't really get anywhere. Mm. And so it's about recreating. If you're going to have a story about your past, if you have one, and and, and a, lot, a lot of us do have these stories about our past and they're negative, then the work I do with people is I, I look at, well, what what stories do you have about your past? and if they're not working for you let's recreate them because this is what we do as as humans we have traumatic mm-hmm. events in our life yeah. and then we we make up stories about those events and we create self-limiting beliefs or you know core beliefs out about ourselves that we're flawed or that there's something wrong with us and it's more that that self-created story that's the problem rather than what happened and so, some of the work I do with people is I look at well, what are your core self-limiting beliefs? Let's break those down, and let's recreate those so that you've now got um, positive belief systems.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's definitely, uh, I think, a game changer with um, and yeah, a different approach to look at it and a way to kind of. Drive forward if you, you know if you're suffering from this, and I think a lot of people do. I think you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but every person on the planet is addicted to something in one way or another, whether it be social media, their phone, coffee. Um, I think you know we've become very reliant on that kind of dopamine hit in life, where you know we get a a hit from you know checking your phone or scrolling through Instagram or. Whatever it may be. Even exercise would be a healthy approach. But I think we've all got yeah, something that's um, definitely that we rely on as, you know, a human race now.
1: Yeah, good point, Jack. So so when I'm working with a client, you know, we we do all have habits um, that don't work for us. And so if I'm if somebody's wanting to quit a habit that's not working for them, I suggest they replace it with a with a positive habit because nature hates a vacuum, and if you're going to give up one behavior, you, you better substitute a positive behavior in there or you'll just swap the witch for the bitch. You know, some people stop smoking cigarettes and get on alcohol or stop smoking cigarettes but get on marijuana. So um, it's about, okay, if I'm going to give up this habit or behavior that's not working for me, I'll put something in there that, like, Ice baths or breath work or meditation or uh, working out or going to the gym or, you know, reading a book or walking in nature. It's, it's important to replace poor habits with, with positive habits. I think that's part of the process. Look, I, I, I want to just go back to, are you able to, um, distill down to
0: how was it that you were able to say no?
1: to drinking what what was it specifically so you were drinking and then you came and saw me we had some coaching sessions and then you got to a place where you were no longer drinking what was that process what what did you hear or learn about yourself what made the difference
0: yeah good question um
2: i think a lot of things i think the first thing was other being true to myself, so and you know, committing, I'm a, a man of commitment as before. You know, I would say, "Oh, I'll do this," or oh, "I'll run a marathon next year," and I'd promise myself a lot of things that I was doing, but I'd never end up doing them. Mm. Um, and I think it was one of the first things we worked on together was, you know, being true to your word. Yeah. Um, so. For me, it was a, a good look at myself in the mirror and and, it, and seeing, you know, the impact not only I was creating for myself but for everyone around me. Um, and then to make a commitment and go, you know, I think before I would always go kind of, oh, you know, I'll limit myself to two drinks and that's it. Or I'll just have one. But put myself in a situation like that and that's not possible. It's like. You're talking with a an elephant in a water trough like <laughs> i had I didn't have those limits, and some people do, but i didn't so think I think the biggest thing for me was going from uh trying to in, um trying to limit or decrease the amount of drink to actually going actually no, nah, no more at all and that kind of flicks at me in my brain is not only a challenge but a kind of drive Ooh. um. And it was interesting because obviously, at the time, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it, because at that time in my life, my whole world was surrounded by alcohol, going out and doing things, your days off, going to the beach, uh everything that I did was revolved, the people I hung around, so it was a huge shifting point in my life where you know, for a while it was like, "Oh well, fuck, what do I do um so I'd, I think by making that hard decision. You know ripping the band off band aid off effect it was tough, you know, but it it put me on a completely different path um and said all right now you you focus your energy away from not focusing on where you want to get pissed tonight. It put my mind almost in a state of this like extreme motivation and drive mm. um so I saw lots of things happen, and lots of things organically and naturally open up for me as well in my career uh and family too um so yeah, it was, it was interesting to, yeah, to kind of sit in that kind of shit spot for a bit. And, but once I made that commitment, I was, I was, I was, I was stuck to it and still am to this day. I definitely had a few slip ups in, you know, in the middle or here between now, but you know, we're in the human and I didn't, you know, look back on it and beat myself up for it. Um, and I think the the biggest, the biggest thing for me or another big thing for me with the whole alcohol culture i think you know worldwide is how normal it is and um you know being one of the most dangerous drugs to come off as an alcohol, you know as a being addicted to alcohol um and if you compare it with you know psychedelics and uh, a lot of other drugs that are deemed you know terrible and bad it's pretty crazy to look at what it does in society. I know Jordan Peterson talks about the, the statistics on alcohol in terms of domestic violence, um, violent crimes, uh, road deaths. There, you know, it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like eighty-five percent of crimes are done while intoxicated.
1: Yeah. So, I have, having worked in emergency rooms for, for ten years or more. Um, I, I can, if you, there's graphs, you can Google a graph of emergency room emissions based on drugs in, 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 that, that people present with and alcohols at the top, head and shoulders above all of them. And right down the bottom are things like cocaine, LSD, mushrooms, you know, things like that. They hardly get a mention at all. Um, right. you know, quite often on a Friday or Saturday night shift in emergency, you know, Eight out of ten of my patients are young people who have drunk too much, and I'm basically babysitting them through the night so they don't, you know, vomit and then you know swallow their vomit, asphyxiate on it and die, or die from alcohol poisoning. So, you know, um, you know those statistics are pretty clear that by far there's way more damage comes from drinking, which is legal, than um, some of these other substances that. Are way less harmless, but that's illegal for for whatever reason. That's a whole nother couple of podcasts to talk about the legality of certain medicines or plant medicines or whatever. Um, but I, but I wanted to go back to to a couple of things that you were sharing. Yeah. So so your life turned around when you stopped drinking quite a bit in in several across several dimensions. I I know your relationship improved. Your you became a father, so your your family got larger. Your your health improved. Your fitness improved. You um, changed jobs from the job that you weren't happy in, or you know, maybe weren't doing as well financially. Into now you've got quite a productive career going, doing work you're more passionate about. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's there's a lot to gain by by giving up the alcohol. Um, and and you you also mentioned that. Yeah, the first thing that we worked on was your relationship to your word, and um, you would say, "I'm I'm going to quit drinking," but because you didn't mean what you said a lot of the times, that you will say you will stop drinking, but you're not going to follow through because because you you had a habit of saying things but but not meaning them, and so that that's certainly one place I work with people is that because I used to be terrible with my word. I would give my word to things and, and not follow through. And so I learned to not trust myself, to, to not trust my own word. And I did a lot of work on that mm. um in my late 30s, early 40s, where I just turned that around and said, no, if I say something, I need to follow through. And so I developed this good relationship to my word, you know. And so now if I say something, there's about a 95% of chance that it's going to happen. And so it used to be about 40%. <laughs> And so so I worked with you on building that relationship to your word so that if I give my commitment to something I now trust that it's going to happen and once we did that work then when you said I'm going to stop drinking you knew there was a real strong chance that you would follow through because you developed that muscle
0: Yeah
2: absolutely um and I think the the other big thing that helped with that, I still remember it. You said, I think we, before we went through the kind of committing to your word, we did the, um, the audit of, um, I can't remember what we called it now.
1: Integrity, um, integrity audit.
2: Like a full life audit. So yeah. integrity audit, that's the one, which scared the shit out of me at the time. But basically what it was was this, um, I, Pete made me write out a, a big list of everything in my life that I could remember that I said I was going to do but I didn't do. And then I'd either have to go through it and decide that that wasn't for me or if I wanted to do it, I had to commit to it. So that was things like saying I was going to walk the dog twice a day or saying I was going to give that 20 bucks back to that guy or whatever it was. And by doing that, it taught me, all right, if I'm gonna to commit to this, this sucks. So I'm gonna make sure that everything I do say I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do. And sure, we're only human, like you know, like you said, it's about you know ninety five percent right. And there's definitely things that you maybe just forget or you you know, you don't wanna do, but um that was another big thing. It's like I think if you step back yeah you know, and pull yourself out of your situation a bit, and then look at you know what you've actually said you'd do, but you haven't done. It's like oh shit, yeah, this is a bit of a problem here, isn't it? Well, not a, a problem, an ongoing, um, yeah, an ongoing, yeah, pattern that you're noticing.
1: Yeah, it's um, yeah. The reason we did that integrity audit because that's when when we when we give our word to something and don't follow through, we learn not to trust ourselves, and therefore we lose our power, our personal power. And so, I wanted you to be empowered mm. as a person, so that when you said no, you meant it, and so we had to work at your we had to work on your relationship to things that you'd given your word to, so I asked you to write a list of all the things you'd given your word to that you hadn't fulfilled on, And I said, "Right now I want you to get in action and complete all those things and then that brings you back into integrity, and then you feel more powerful as a person um I think Jordan Peterson talks about Mm. it. He asks his clients to to write down, you know, make a list of all the dumb things you do every day. Um, I I have a similar list. I tell people like – Yeah. Because I think it's important as humans that we really learn to trust ourselves, but if we're doing things that we're not okay with on a daily basis, then we're not going to trust ourselves. So here's one for your audience. write down a list of all the things that you do or don't do that cause you to not trust yourself.
0: And so, you know, maybe some people
1: are lying or cheating or stealing or, you know, um, driving while intoxicated or using their phone while they're driving. They know they're, they're doing it. They know they're not okay with it, but they still continue to do it. And so they learn to to not trust themselves and, the problem with that is that's disempowering. But not only that, other people won't trust you also. You know, if you don't trust yourself, other people pick up on that and are less likely to trust you. So, yeah, make a make, here's one for your audience. Make a list of all the things you do on a daily basis that cause you to not trust yourself and then work on that list. Like, yeah. you know, deal with all those things so that you're not doing them anymore. And then you'll start to trust yourself as a person. And then a, a lot of power comes from that because uh then if you're dealing with addiction and you say, I'm going to say no to cannabis or I'm going to say no to cocaine or I'm going to say no to alcohol, you can trust yourself that you're actually going to follow through on that because you've become that person. Mm. But while you continue to traffic, yeah. traffic in these habits that you're not okay with, you're just losing, you know, your power to, to say no. I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, in some ways Nancy Reagan was right back in the 80s when her uh, her response to the, the drug problem um, in America, I think it was crack cocaine at the time, uh, she said, just say no, you know. And a lot of people thought, oh, that's a very simplistic response. Yeah. But there, there is some truth to it, you know. But it's one thing to to tell a person to just say no and it's another one to coach a person or give them the tools to how to say no so i i've got a blog on my webcast i've got a couple of blogs on Mm -hmm. addiction but also on on how to say no because some people have a problem with saying no and so then I work with them on, on, on that concept and get them to be more f- comfortable and familiar with the word no and how to use it powerfully And because the things you say no to, yeah. uh, the things that you say no to create space for you to say yes to other things. So when you said no to alcohol, it opened up the doors of saying yes to fitness, yes to a new career, yes to relationship, yes to um, being a father. You know, these other doors open. So it's important to be able to say no. But then how do if you're not good at saying no, then mm. you need to learn how to do that and so that's some of the work I do with, with clients around addiction is teaching them how to
0: say no. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And it sounds um it sounds easier than it's done I think too.
1: It, it that's that's yeah, that's yeah
0: that's the, the old, perception. no is
1: always a hard one. Yeah, the perception is it's easy for you to say just say no. No, no, I'm not saying it's easy to do that. It is a challenge, but that's the work that we did, Jack, was that I got you to uh, improve your relationship to your word and, and, you know, you had to do some work. Nothing comes easy, but then you did the work and then you became someone who trusted their word so that then when you said no to drinking, you knew that you weren't going to drink and then you you have it and you say you've had a couple of relapses and then you mm. just recommitted recommitted to not drinking so it, it it's yeah, simple exactly. it's a simple solution but it does uh, yeah it's simple but not easy
0: correct
2: yeah and there's a, <laughs> there's a funny thing while we're talking about this i remember going back to my first um you know, when you're talking about Nancy Reagan in terms of just say no. And I always find it really funny how, you know, the, the government's kind of create these campaigns and programs, I guess, to, to, to try and assist people. And I remember when I was in, I think it might have been primary school, uh, there was a, I can't remember the name of the bus that used to come around, but it, it was a bus design that would park into the school for about a week and they'd run like a program for the young children. Now I look back on it; it's actually it's pretty tragic, in my opinion, that they would have this guy dressed up as a giraffe uh, in this van talk to a bunch of kids why alcohol and drugs were bad, and then they'd have all these puppet shows. And I under, probably they were trying to grab the kids' attention. But I was like, if that's your, if that's my first memory about the the risks and the the damaging effects of drugs and alcohol. Surely it must have had an impact on everyone else too. Like, if you go, all right, what's your first memory of someone telling that alcohol is bad? It's a, it's a random guy dressing up as a giraffe in a bus. You know, I, it's, I just always found that hilarious to look back on now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I want to share a personal story about this, Jack. You'll, you'll appreciate this one. Um, so in, in Western Australia, where I'm from, they had a character. He was like a, a, a puppet, like a human sized puppet with a man, you know, an actor inside. And he was Constable Care. So it was like a police officer kind of character, uh, cartoon character. Yeah. And so my brother, who was into amateur theater and acting, uh, he was the person inside Constable Care. And his job was to go around to schools, uh, you know, teaching, uh, teenagers, you know, 16, 17 year olds, about you know drinking and driving and and safe driving and things like this, they so travel all around Western Australia, going to the schools. And uh, unbeknownst to anyone else, uh, my brother uh, had lost his license twenty two times. I think he might even hold a record for the amount of times wow. you can, can lose your license.
2: I was going to say that would be a record.
1: <laughs> so here he is <laughs> in, in a in a in a police costume outfit. Teaching kids about safe driving when, when, you know, at the time he was probably one of the least safe drivers on the road. Um, this, when I remember it, uh, when I was in high school, uh, we had a, um, a one hour lecture or assigned to a drug education. I was really looking forward to it because I was interested in the, in the subject. And they, they had a police officer come and an ex heroin addict come. And it only went for about 15 minutes instead of an hour. And they both basically both said, drugs are bad. Uh, don't do drugs. And that was, that was all we got. And I'm, I, I remember thinking to myself, that's not a drug <laughs> education. <laughs> and so, so one of the things I, one of my, yeah. one of my projects that I'm, I'm working on and hope to release later this year is, um, a, an online course that is a, a drug education for teenagers. A proper drug education, like a you know a one to two hour mm. uh, one to two hour video uh, lecture on each each drug, each medication, each intoxicant um and give people actual information i mean they can people can already access this stuff on the internet if they're interested, but I'd like to kind of coalesce it all in one spot um because I've looked at drugs, plant medicines psychedelics. From every angle. And I think I have a pretty balanced view and can provide, um, yeah, something more in alignment with a true education about these things rather than just, if you tell a 15 year old not to do something, they're more inclined to go and do it. And I think what, what teenagers need. Yeah, 100% agree. What, what teenagers need is a proper education about all the substances because they're going to be exposed to them. So they better be well-equipped to to deal with it. And just telling them to say no at that age is not helpful. I remember learning trigonometry in high school, and I've never come across that since. I learnt nothing about drugs, and they're, they're practically an everyday encounter in life where you're exposed to whether it's alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, or, or whatever. So we're not really prepared to to deal with these things that are, uh, a daily issue so there's yeah i think the education department needs to you know wake up and and start educating people about these things rather than keeping them ignorant and you know contributing to the problem rather than helping solve it so yeah i think there's a there's mm-hmm. a niche market there to create a good online education for
0: for drugs for teenagers 100%
2: and you know, I think you know anyone that says that you know they're too young or you know they're going, to they're not going to do it is uh is lying to themselves too. I think you know, especially in your team, is everyone's very experimental and you know, in most of the cases, I guess when you try your first whatever it is, it's in the worst scenario possible. Like you're getting it off some random guy that you've never met. And you're doing it with a bunch of people that have never done that thing before. So you, you, you're putting, you know, your child or someone else's child in an extremely, you know, confronting spot for them. I think if, you know, the doors are, you know, I, I know with my, my son, um, having that open door and not having it as a shameful thing, if you do do it, and if you do do it, this is, you know, like you kind of said, this is what it feels like. This is, you know, the, the risks um and having you know if anything does go wrong that at least he knows his parents uh, 100 percent supporting him and non-judgmental of it too and creating that kind of safe space um as i think you know a lot of it is you know it's so shunned upon and you know a lot of kids are afraid to speak up and say you know what happened or what is happening um which is you know had some They had a huge amount of overdoses and they worked out the reason because of this was that they had sniffer dogs at the entrance, just post the entrance. So what kids were doing is they saw the sniffer dogs and freaked out and took everything they had and then they had these mass overdose rates because, you know, the, the, the police had put this big front on you know, trying to, a scare tactic, but it resulted in people freaking out and worried about getting caught, which turned into, you know, I think a few people died and, yeah, huge hospitalization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a big problem there. Um, I don't think, yeah, having the police at those, those kind of um, festivals, I mean, police should be policing actual problems, you know, not potential problems, and they kind of, co-created that i I, I believe um so yeah i i I know a few people that you know when their when their child children were teenagers or you know 16 17 years of age um you know uh, when they wanted to use cannabis they said well you know if you're going to do that then you're going to do it at home and with me so that i i know what you're up to and that you you know you're doing it responsibly and that you're not using something off the street or, you know, chronic or one of these, you know, synthetic Mm. problems. And so, and, and, you know, even experimenting with other drugs, the, the parents have the kid do it at home with them as their first experience. Now, if you look at that from a legal perspective, that parent could probably be charged with child abuse, child neglect, you know, child services might come and visit them and say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that with your child. You know, um, allowing them to consume, um, you know, an illegal substance at home. So that's that's a problem right there. Because what the parents really doing, I think, is a responsible thing. In some ways, that if the child's going to use anyway, then better they have that experience at home, where the parent can supervise them, than doing it somewhere where they're at far greater risk. Um, hundred percent yeah it it's interesting that you know there's a whole conversation around the whole legality of things because just because something's legal doesn't mean it's necessarily best for humanity um slavery was legal at the time the Holocaust was legal at the time, so what's legal doesn't always equal what's best and so when when it comes to drugs and mm-hmm. substances like this um Malcolm McCusker, he's a QC from WA, I, he was on the front page of the newspaper, I remember, about 30 years ago saying that we haven't had an intelligent conversation about drugs in Australia for 50 years. So that's 80 years now. And we don't. We, we, don't, wow. have a, we don't have an intelligent discourse about the topic of drugs. Um, even the word drug has been tainted and contaminated, and this is something that I'd like to do a separate podcast on and, and will do, the whole conversation around having an intelligent conversation around drugs because we don't have one and so most people are misinformed and, and, and uneducated and yeah. and that's why it, it continues to be a, a problematic thing. So I think the way of dealing with this is, you know, informed informed debate and, you know, educating
0: ourselves rather than Sweeping it under the under the carpet. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um think very old fashioned in the way that we we still handle it. Um,
2: but I think going back, because when I, I was saying about the the overdoses at the festival, um, I was recently somewhere in New Zealand where they have. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's in Australia yet, but they've got. Um, Drug testing stations. So you can take whatever you've got in there and you can get it tested. You don't get caught. Um, no trouble. And then it's ensuring that they're not, uh, you know, taking something that could have a, a reverse, a you know, bad side effect or whatever it may be. And I think in that, and they also give, you know, some sort of education piece and what it is they have. Um, which I was, yeah, pretty, it was good to see. And it was also quite bizarre too, because it was, yeah, for police, they're literally seeing everyone in that festival that has, (laughs) has an illegal substance walking into the 110. Um, but from a health perspective and a safety perspective, it's, I think it's imperative to have a system like that where people do feel safe and they know they're not going to get in trouble because it just limits those risks of one people taking something that's going to, you know, that's going to kill them. And two, they're getting, you know, education pieces on what it does and how to use it. Um, because at the end of the day, that you know, that person's going to digest whatever they've got in their pocket, whether you know, the cop likes it or not. So they may as well do it in the most safe and um sensible setting as possible.
1: Yeah, I'm quite often what, what I think these people are taking at these festivals is is most likely MDMA. And um Statistically, Mm. MDMA is as safe as riding a horse or drinking a glass of wine. So, statistically, is that right? Yes, yeah, that's that's uh, that's correct. You can fact check that. Um, So, compared to alcohol, I don't think alcohol uh,
0: is is as safe.
1: Would have the same safety record? Well, it, it doesn't. By looking at, you know, emergency room presentations. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's, if you, I'm not, I'm not suggesting or advocating for people taking illegal substances at festivals. But if people are going to do that, then we need to do it responsibly and we need to support that rather than again, make it wrong and just make the problem worse um people are going to do it anyway so yeah so why don't we put the the things in place like like the the pill testing tents to
0: make sure that we're minimizing harm yeah so, so yeah keep, keep the sniffing i think you're also coming from an early age too i don't i don't, I don't
2: I don't know what the uh the current you know primary school education is doing it might have changed a lot since I was in school but um it would be pretty disappointing to see if they were still using that same tactic because um, I think you know it starts at an early age It's introduced as an early age and you know I think the pattern and the relationship
0: with it starts at an early age also Yeah
1: I want to, can I share a personal story? Yeah.
0: So interesting.
1: Can I, I just want to share a personal story before we wind up. Go for it. So, so my, my father was a, a liquor salesman. So the family business was alcohol. And so my dad was the sales manager and his job was to drive around to bottle shops and, and hotels and, and sell liquor. And so in in my school holidays I would work at the factory bottling labeling and packaging alcohol. So you know I've always been around it from a young age. And I remember in year 10 um I went to an all boys uh Christian college in in Perth. And in year 10 I we had the school uh, the the year 10 ball. And um so that night I I got a few miniature bottles of alcohol. And had brought them to the school dance and i was selling them to to my classmates so that they could have a little nip of something you know and uh yeah yeah and so i guess i was following in my dad's footsteps you know being a liquor salesman and so i got caught by one of the one of the teachers christian brother and so i had to i had to report to the to the headmaster's office in the on Monday morning to to front up and and um, take responsibility for for my actions and so the headmaster came in and he he got this belt this leather and lead belt that they used to that they used to use to to punish kids with and put it on on his desk and he said okay um you, you, I'm going to give you two choices uh, you either get six on the ass of the belt. Or I'm gonna call your father on the phone and tell him that you've been selling alcohol at school. And I said, Oh, that's that's a no brainer. Thanks, brother. I'll take the six on the ass. And so so he walloped me, you know, six times and then and then he then he picked up the phone and called my father. (laughs) Right. So I got, I got punished twice for the one crime. And I think I think they don't allow that. There's something called double jeopardy where you can't be punished twice for the same crime. But but um, so I'm not sure what he was trying to teach me. Uh, yeah. All those years ago, 40 years ago now. <laughs> so alcohol's played it kind of yeah. Part yeah. Of my or life. maybe you just
2: wanted to see you suffer a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was the last time I sold alcohol, put it that way
0: been an interesting
2: yeah interesting definitely
1: i can imagine it would be i would be too if i got hit six times in the ass. <laughs> it's been it been a great great chat jack um and we only really touched on the surface of some of these subjects and, and some of them deserve a, a whole podcast to themselves um and they're things that i do do like to talk about and investigate and explore so um yeah i'm just a bit conscious of time i've, I've got to be somewhere else uh I want to thank you for inviting me on and giving me this opportunity to talk about things that I'm passionate about. And I also want to acknowledge you for yeah, all the work you've done. In, in to, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm probably twice your age and quite a few of my clients are young men in their 30s and I feel that one of the roles of men is to pass on knowledge to younger men and, and you'll be doing that. You're already doing that as well and so you're a conduit and then you'll you'll attract an audience of younger men that will look to you to guide them. And so I want to acknowledge you for occupying that
0: space and, and your commitment to that.
2: Yeah, thank you, Pete. Yeah, it's uh it's been great talking, mate. And um yeah, like you said, I agree. I think there's lots of different topics we can go to in future podcasts together. Um so yeah, excited for that. And, uh, for everyone listening, I'll, I'll put a, a, a link, um, in the description of the podcast. That'll take you to Pete's website and it showcases a bit of the work that he's doing and his courses. Um, so if you want to look more into that, because yeah, I couldn't recommend Pete, uh, more highly. I know, um, he's, he's a wizard around our areas and, uh, these ever growing business and company that he's growing, I'm sure it'll, it'll reach you soon too. So. Pete, thank you again, and uh, let's looking forward to chatting more soon. Thanks, Jack.
1: It's been a pleasure, and I, I look forward to coming on your podcast uh, at the next opportunity and uh, thank you thank you to your listeners for, for their time. Beautiful. thanks, Pete.